spirit of all wisdom, together we seek your wisdom and thirst for your word. Gather us with open hearts that the barrenness of Lent might prepare us for the joy of Easter. Amen. A New Testament reading from the Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. The Gospel of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through <coughs> as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which in, with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 17. We'll pick up our reading in verse 20 in your pew Bible. It starts on page 1,680. In John 17, Jesus has been praying for his disciples, the ones that he spent the last three years with, knowing that the time of his crucifixion is near. In his prayer, we actually get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus as the man of love. But by the end of his prayer, he's praying for more than just them. He starts to pray for those who would believe through their message for future believers, including the very people in this room today. What is Jesus' prayer for you? That's what we see here in John 17, beginning in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the ones who already were his followers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, And I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
as you look to the last words of anybody, you see what's most important to them. And so as we look to these last words of the last and the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, I want us to take a closer look at three things in the prayer. A purpose, a mystery, and an invitation. First, the purpose. Uh, What's Jesus actually praying for here? What's his goal in this? Like, what does he actually want for you? Well, we see the answer beginning in verse 21, uh, where Jesus prays for all of those who will one day believe that they may be one. And then in case we think it's just a passing statement, he repeats it again in verse 22. And then in verse 23 says that they would be perfectly uh, one. Prays for complete unity. Jesus' prayer for you is for oneness. When we hear this, though, we instinctively ask, well, yeah, but one in, in what way? In, in what sense does Jesus want us to be one. Well, fortunately, earlier in the Gospels, uh, Jesus has already talked about his goal of oneness. In in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus compared himself to a shepherd and his followers to sheep when he said, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Then the very next chapter, he puts his purpose in family terms when he says that it's to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, which, which together uh, foreshadows the coming together of, of Jews and Gentiles, people from every uh, tribe and every nation and every language coming together under Christ. And, and to follow the image that Jesus uses first, what makes sheep to be one flock is not the size of the sheep. It's not the breed of the sheep. It's not the color of their wool or the gender of the sheep, but the shepherd who watches over you. In the same way, the oneness of believers is not really about who you are, however you measure that, but whose you are. Verse 21, Jesus prays this about those who would believe. He says, may they also be in us, because the oneness with each other actually starts with a spiritual oneness with the Father through Jesus Christ that results in a personal fellowship with other believers, regardless of anything else that we may or may not have in common already. And yet still in verse 26, Jesus does mention something that he says that we should all have in common, that should be common to every follower of us, his. Love. Love. You see, there at the very end of his prayer, he more clearly reveals his purpose to us, praying to God the Father, that the love you have for me may be in them. In other words, that the love of God may dwell amongst the people of God. Uh, Together, we see Jesus' heart in his prayer for his church is this, that there would be a loving oneness among us, a love for each other characterized by God's own love. As biblical scholar Andreas Kostenberger puts it, Jesus' prayer for oneness is not about an organizational unity, but actually an all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together and binds believers to the Lord which actually says something for us today about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It says that you can't do it alone. See, it's not just that the solo Christian, you know, approach is less than Jesus wants for you. It's actually quite literally the opposite of his dying wish for you. Because there's some things you just can't experience from a distance, and the chief of them is love. Pastor Eugene Peterson put it this way. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. 
See, if you ever wonder why it is that we talk so much about being in community, why we talk so much about being in community groups, why we talk so much about getting connected with others, that's why. Because it's not just our desire for you, it's, it's Jesus' desire for you, quite literally his dying wish for you. And yet the reason that Jesus prays this for his church actually goes far beyond you or me. See, in verse 23, Jesus prays to the Father for the perfect oneness of his people to, quote, let the world know that you, Father, sent me. It's the same thing that he says at the end of verse 21, that the world may know that Jesus wasn't just speaking on his own. He didn't just make it up as he was going, that he actually was the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by the Father, the one that we've been waiting for. But but what's the connection there? Why would Jesus pray this? What does the oneness of believers have to do with how people actually see who Jesus is? And why is it so important that Jesus is praying for it twice in the same prayer? We probably find the answer in the word that eventually became used for the followers of Jesus, that word Christian. Uh, You see, the word was first coined about a decade after this prayer in the city of Antioch. Back in Antioch, when they talked about the walls that divided different people groups, it wasn't a figure of speech. There were literal walls. There were walled-off neighborhoods of 18 different ethnic groups designed to keep all these different groups from riding against each other, and yet even the walls didn't always work. And yet the message of Jesus, when the message that Jesus spoke of in verse 20, the message of him came there, those who believed started climbing over those walls, not to fight each other, but to worship with each other. Emmanuel Katongle who's a Ugandan Catholic priest who also teaches at Notre Dame, writes this about the believers living in that city. The community in Antioch brought together Jews and Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, slaves and free, men and women, in a way that was so confusing that people around them didn't know what to call them, so they simply called them Christians. The only way they knew to describe their peculiar actions was to say that they were followers of an odd preacher from Galilee. You can just imagine, though, when you get that mix of people together, the challenges that they would have faced. You can imagine the cultural differences that would inevitably lead to misunderstandings and to hurt feelings, meaning there was constantly a need to be forgiving one another. You can imagine the relational price paid by these believers because they were willingly associating with people on the other side of their own community's prejudices. You can imagine the sneers that they would have seen when they were seen climbing back over the walls into their own community, sneers from their own relatives because they still smelled like another community's ethnic cuisine. Almost by necessity, the church in Antioch would have been characterized by a costly, forgiving, impartial love. As Katongle concludes, the world is longing for such new and odd communities in our time. And when we see that, when the world sees that, and otherworldly love and unity and oneness together that defies expectation, it actually points beyond the community itself to the otherworldly nature of the Christ who unites that community. You see, Jesus' prayer goes beyond believers simply having a love parallel to God's love, but also uh, prays for a oneness that parallels the oneness between God, the Father, and between Jesus Christ. See, in verse 22, Jesus prays to the Father that they may be one as we are one. See, our oneness, our loving connection with the Father is to parallel the love and the unity experienced between God and between the Father, between Jesus Christ, the Son. And if you're actually going to grasp that, if we're going to grasp that, that actually means delving into the mystery, 
in Jesus' prayer. The oneness within the Trinity. You see, oneness has always been foundational for how God's people understood him. You see, the Jewish Shema, for example, the, one of those oldest uh, uh, prayers that are central to the life of, of Jewish people, begins with these words found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, for Jesus' first followers, all of whom were Jewish, one thing is clear. There is only one God. And yet, in the very first chapter of the Bible, that one God makes this very mysterious statement. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. See, as we read through John's gospel, we actually find very explicit statements about Jesus being divine himself. The first paragraph of John's gospel talks about Jesus as the one who not only was in the beginning with God as the very agent of creation, but who actually was God himself. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he refers to the Holy Spirit and often refers to the Holy Spirit interchangeably with the word God. In fact, in the book of Acts, to lie against uh, to the Holy Spirit is described as lying to God himself. See, if we look at the whole of Christian scripture, it actually clearly teaches uh, that the one that Jesus addressed as Father is God, that Jesus Christ is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there's still only one God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in essence, equal in power and in glory, as one person put it, three who's and one what. And yet in that, not a contradiction, but a mystery. In his book, Embracing the Mysterious God, James Emery White writes this, a mystery is beyond rational explanation. It's not inherently self-contradictory, We just lack the ability to penetrate, quote, the cloud of unknowing that surrounds it. See, the Trinity is is a mystery, and yet if you think about it, it's actually a very comforting mystery. Because it's been said that a God that I can fully comprehend, that I can fully wrap my mind around, is also a God who could be fully the product of that same mind. A God of my creation, not the God who actually created me. White goes on to write, While I might struggle with the mystery that surrounds God, deep down I actually want God to be more than I am, to know more than I do. I yearn for a God to be beyond my understanding. He goes on to write, Spirituality in virtually every form taps into our longing for the mysterious, our hunger for that which is not of this world. So when Jesus talks about his otherworldly relationship with God the Father, he he doesn't explain to them precisely in every single minute detail how it's true, just boldly saying that it is true. It's what we see in John 10, verse 30, where Jesus simply says, I and the Father are one. Then later in that same chapter, and then twice in verse 14, he again mysteriously says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And that hurts our brains sometimes. We're like, okay, how, how does that end the other work? Like, I can think of like a Russian, like, matryoshka dolls, those little, you know, stacking dolls. It's like a little one and the big one and the big one. They're all, there's one is inside of the other. And like, I understand that, but how can it go both ways? Like, like, like it, it almost like hurts my brain to think about it. In fact, any analogy that we can think of to try to describe the Trinity, like water, you know, it's one substance, but it exists in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. Any analogy that we come with eventually breaks down at some point because I'm pretty sure God the Father did not boil Jesus Christ to give us the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure eventually all analogies break down at some point, but that doesn't mean that we can't, just because we can't fully comprehend something doesn't mean that we can't understand anything about it at all. 
See, one of the implications of God existing as three persons is one is that God is by nature relational. That we can know. See, God didn't have to create any other beings to enter into a loving relationship because he already had that. And he had it for longer than we can imagine. You see, to the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus adds the mystery of the eternal. It's what we see in verse 24 where Jesus talks about to the Father, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. How long is that? How do you measure that type of love? You see, Jesus actually speaks of quite literally an immeasurable love. In our scripture reading that we heard in Ephesians 1, we heard how God set his sovereign, his, his adopting love upon his people, quote, before the foundation of the world. You see, there was a time before you were. There was a time before I was. There was a time at which time we were not. And yet God's love does not have a beginning point. There was no time before God's love. It's actually fundamental to his very being. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller points out how earlier in this gospel, John describes the Son as living from all eternity in the bosom of the Father. It's this ancient metaphor for love and for intimacy. Later in John's gospel, Jesus the Son describes the Spirit as giving glory to him. And in John 17, we say in turn that the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son, and Jesus says this has been going on for all eternity. You see, to glorify somebody is to serve or to defer to him or to her. You see, instead of sacrificing their interests to make you happy, you actually sacrifice your interests to make them happy. And why? Because your ultimate joy is found in seeing their joy. See, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, which we're much more familiar with in our world, but actually self-giving love. See, when we delight and serve someone else, we enter into this dynamic orbit around them. We center on their interests. We center on the desires of their heart. We actually create a dance, particularly if there are three persons involved, each one always encircling the other two. And so it is, the Bible says, with the Trinity. Each of us, sorry, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, rejoices in the others. And that creates this dynamic, pulsating dance of, of joy and of love. See, the early leaders of the Greek church actually had a word for this. They they called it a perichoresis. It was a word that at its root gives us the English word choreography. It literally means to dance around. And so when Jesus says in verse 22 of his prayers that they may be one as we are one, that's the kind of loving oneness he actually has in mind. The kind of love that uh, that Jesus wants in believers when he prays in verse 26 that the love that you have for me may be in them, delighting in the other, deferring to the other rather than measuring ourselves against the other, willingly revolving around others rather than demanding that they do the same thing to us. You see, in the dance of the Trinity, self-giving love is the Trinity's signature move. Verse 22. Jesus shows them what this looks like, saying of believers that that he has given them the glory that you, Father, have given me. See, Jesus shows a love that willingly gives glory to others. 
Jesus gives his glory away with a purpose, as he says in verse 22, that they may be one, that we wouldn't be competing for our own glory. We wouldn't be constantly seeking to establish our own significance, always measuring ourselves against each other, but instead receiving glory from Jesus. Many have looked at this prayer and have noticed that that Jesus prays for oneness, but it's easy to miss what Jesus says actually creates that oneness. It's not some innovative organizational structure or getting the people that already like each other together in one place, but rather Jesus Christ, the one who is equal in power and glory with the Father, giving his glory to those who believe. You see, Jesus says that he had a purpose when he came to earth and that fulfilling the work that God sent Jesus to do by his perfect substitutionary life, Jesus brought glory to the Father and yet also brought glory to us. Not a glory that we experience because of how we compare with one another, but a glory that actually draws us to one another. It's what Robert Yarborough called the transforming personal presence of God, that which results in in a deep joy, in a persuasive witness to the world, in a display of, of God's glory for all to see in the church and outside the church. A glory that actually enables us to live in a loving unity, which Kostenberger describes as the unity of a common mind and purpose, an unqualified mutual love, a sustained, comprehensive togetherness in mission. That's what Jesus prays for those who believe in him. So how do you get there? Well, maybe the most significant part of Jesus' prayer is not what he prays will happen, but what he says already has happened. And in that, we find more than instruction in Jesus' prayer. We actually find an invitation. See, in verse 20, Jesus says that the way that this reality becomes your reality is through the message of Jesus' first followers, what we find recorded in the scriptures today, a message that is actually amplified. It's actually made louder and clearer when his people actually live out the oneness that Jesus is praying about here before a watching world, a message that is actually nothing less than an invitation into the eternal life and love and community of the Trinity itself. You see, in verse 23, Jesus speaks about believers when he says to the Father that he wants the world to know that, quote, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says that what the world needs to know, that mystery of all mysteries, is that the eternal love of the Father for the Son is actually available for those who believe in him today. You see, in today's scripture reading, we heard that those who believe in Jesus are described as the adopted children of God. And what Jesus says in his prayer is that the adopted child of God is no less loved than the only begotten Son, Jesus. So if you want to know, how does God love a believer? Look at the relationship between the Father and the Son. Scriptures give us a few snapshots. In Mark 1, verse 11, at Jesus' own baptism, as the Spirit of God descends on Jesus, the Father declares this to Jesus, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Years later, Jesus' disciples hear the same words spoken over Jesus at his transfiguration, words that likely were still ringing in their ears when they overhear Jesus praying that same night in their hearing, You have loved them even as you loved me. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Father's word for you is this. You are my child. With you, I am well pleased. 
And if we doubt that that type of divine love is actually available for us, that it's really true, just look at what Jesus prays for himself. You see, in verse 24, speaking of believers, Jesus prays, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am. Think of those that you would want to see most on the other side of the grave. Those that you would want to be together with for all eternity. Think of those who, if somehow miraculously they walked up to you this afternoon, your jaw would drop and then quiver. And when you saw that it was real, you would burst into tears and embrace them, knowing that you would never have to be parted again. How would you answer that question? But when Jesus was asked that question, he answered with your name. That's who Jesus wants to be with. He wants to be with you. And did you catch in Jesus' prayer how he sees the one that he wants to be with? Verse 24, Jesus describes the one who believes as a gift given to him by the Father. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that is who you are. You are a gift, a showing the eternal love of the Father for the Son. That is your true value. Jesus sees you as a gift, and he wants you to be with him, to see his glory, the glory that is the mark of how much the Father has loved him, so that you might see how much the Father loved Jesus, so that you might see how much the Father has loved you. See, it's through seeing Jesus that we actually best learn what God is really like. Verse 26, Jesus prays to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, so that the eternal love of the Trinity may be alive in us. And yet, how does that actually happen? How do we grow in that love? How do we experience more of this oneness Jesus prays about? Well, in Jesus' words here, it comes by letting him reveal the Father to us. So I just want to give you three ways to let Jesus reveal the Father to you. Three ways to respond to Jesus' invitation to make God known to you. First, through his body, the church. That means actually immersing ourselves in a community that centers on Jesus and his love. It means actually letting ourselves be known. Be known deep enough that we know the person being embraced is not just the preferred version of ourselves that we let people see, but the real us. Because God invites us into this relationship of full disclosure and complete acceptance that he wants us uh, to see, uh, first of all, through his church. But we're never going to be able to experience that until we actually let our guard down and let people love us as we really are. As another pastor put it, God, who is community, can only be known in community. Second, Jesus reveals God to us through his own life and teaching. What we find recorded in scriptures. That's why we looked at love for God's word last week, that the very place where we see the life of Jesus lived out, revealing God in his most knowable form. And if for you, though, when you imagine God, it's the image of the angry ogre in the sky, somebody willing to shake or just throw a stick at you, someone that you might tiptoe around, but somebody that you can never imagine embracing you in love, then it's it's quite possible that some combination of your own experiences— Maybe the people in your life or maybe the people in your past have actually clouded your perception of who God is. And Jesus says to you, come closer. Take a look. 
let me show you something better than you've imagined. As biblical scholar N.T. Wright put it, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus and keep on looking until you're not just a spectator but part of the drama that has Jesus as the central character in your life. And at the center of Jesus' life and his message, the thing that reveals God to us most clearly is actually the cross. You see, Christians believe that Jesus didn't come to tell people to be nice to each other and give them a good example to follow. He actually came to offer his own life as a substitute for those who would believe in him, that his perfect record would be offered on those behalf who would trust in him, who know that they can't get right with God based on their own record or their own efforts. Yet Jesus not only offered his life as a substitute, but also his death as a substitute on the cross. And he did so because we have a problem, a problem the Bible calls sin, our crimes against God, our attempts to be our own God and our own Savior, which are rooted in a fixation on our own self and our own needs that ultimately isolates us from each other and destroys any possibility of real oneness. And as long as we're focused on ourselves, we'll never see God. And so Jesus invites us to look to him, to the cross, to show us just how big an eternal love really is and just how far he's willing to go to deal with a sin that keeps us from oneness with him and each other. You see, in a world where we all demand that the world revolves around us and our needs, nothing is going to change unless someone actually breaks the mold and does something otherworldly. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, offering his life, absorbing the wrath of God for sin, not for him, but for anybody who would trust in him. But why would he do such a thing? What was Jesus getting out of it? What was his motive? Well, Jesus Christ already had experienced a joyful community of love and, ex- and acceptance and, and joy from, and glory from all eternity with the Father and with the Spirit. He didn't need the cross. He didn't need expo- followers even to experience infinite glory because he already had that. So why did he do it? What was Jesus getting out of it? He already had it all. Well, as Tim Keller puts it, when Jesus came into the world and died on the cross to deal with our sins, he was actually circling and serving us, giving to us out of his infinite glory. He began to do with us what he had been doing with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He centers upon us, loving us despite the infinite cost to himself. See, friends, the cross is where Jesus demonstrated a love that is eternal, by, willing, by willingly paying the penalty of God's judgment that is eternal so you can experience a life that is eternal. A life that Jesus defines in John 17, verse 3, where he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Kevin Miller tells a story about how he came to know God in a new way back in college. He writes, When I came to college, I moved 700 miles from my family. Back then, there was no email, no instant messages, no cell phone. My college roommate hung out just by himself, and my first winter, it snowed 90 inches. I felt like I was living in the Arctic. I was lonely and quite literally out in the cold. Then a senior guy named Mike invited me to his apartment for dinner and a a Bible study. 
I got there, and the first thing I noticed was that his apartment had real walls made out of drywall, not just like cinder blocks painted over way too many times. His wife, Lynn, was cooking a home-cooked meal, and I could smell it as soon as I walked in the door and tasted way better than anything from the cafeteria. There were others, people there too, a guy named Dave, another one named Dan, who were upperclassmen, and they were pretty popular. In fact, they would have never spent time with me, I thought, or even known who I was, but because I'd been invited to Mike's apartment, well, they talked with me. In fact, we all talked and laughed and played games and listened to music and drank coffee and, and hung out together way, way too late. And as I walked home with Dan, I was thinking, wow, no one's got a huge bloated ego. They just care about each other. That apartment became my home and my sanity. Whenever I had a question or a problem about dating, I would head to Mike's apartment. Whenever I had a question or a problem about my spiritual life, I would head to Mike's apartment. At that time, I was trying to live my Christian life in a legalistic way, in my own power, a way which is really horrible to try doing. But I didn't know any other way. And so Mike and Dan began teaching me a better way. What I found in Mike's apartment was this community of love. You might say to be a Christian is to be invited to Mike's apartment. To be a Christian is to be invited into the community of love that we call the Trinity. You see, in the Trinity, you never find one person who's grumpy, never find a person who is uh, taking love but not giving love in return. No one is cynical or jaded. Or critical. Do you see that in the Trinity there is no jealousy, no jealousy, no politics, no power plays? See, the reason why we can't find very many good analogies for the Trinity is that we constantly live in such a broken relationships that it's hard for us to imagine a community in which there's constant joy and creativity and each person pouring himself out for the others. It sounds crazy, but I think it would be theologically accurate to say, God is a party and you're invited. And yet Miller wasn't the first one to use that image. It was Jesus. You see, in Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable about somebody who put themselves squarely in the middle of their own universe and demanded that everybody else revolve around him and around his desires. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It begins with a younger son who tells their father that I want the inheritance and I want it now which in their culture was a way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. So he leaves home with the family riches, his portion of it, and spends it recklessly on himself. Quite predictably, eventually, the fun and the money all run out, and yet he's still experiencing the effects of his self-centered ways. So he starts doing the math and seeing the emptiness in his life. He decides, you know what, I'm just going to go home I'm going to ask God, just just hire me, treat me like one of your employees, and that'll be much better than where I'm at now. But I'm not expecting much. And so he comes home. He comes home in honest repentance. And yet instead of finding a father waiting, you know, just, just to rail at him, he finds that his father has been looking for him all the while, who sees him far in the distance, who starts running at him. In a time and a culture where Fathers don't run, especially after the sons that have disgraced them in the family. He runs, and he embraces him, and he throws his arms around him. He he starts kissing him. He puts the family ring on his finger. He, He puts the cloak on his back, all signs that he has been restored, that he is loved, that he is one with the Father, that he is loved and accepted. And then 
to celebrate, he throws him a party and he invites everybody to come. As Paul Miller put it, the lost son has re-entered the circle of the father's love, the circle of joy. He has come home and taste what Jesus has tasted from the beginning of time. And the only one who holds out, the only one who doesn't come directly to the party, is the older brother in the family, the one who can't stomach the thought that such a love is available even for the wicked, for the sinful, and the undeserving, because he thinks he's so much the opposite, not realizing that he's exactly the same. And yet even he receives an invitation from the Father to come and join the party. So how about you? Have you come to the party? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you embraced this eternal love for the unworthy so it can actually overflow from you? As another pastor put it, you'll never completely love until you know that you are loved completely. That's Jesus' prayer for you. But it's also an invitation. An invitation to us to be with Jesus, to know God as he actually is, and to enter into that community of eternal love so that the love supreme that we've been talking about these past few weeks, the love for God and the love for his word, the love for our neighbor, the love for our spouse, even the love for our enemies, the love for the poor and those with disabilities, that the love that is eternal, which, with which the Father loves the Son, can be in us and lived out among us as a people who love because he first loved us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for showing us through Scripture a love eternal, a love that, that baffles us, a love that almost seems beyond mysterious, that seems utterly unbelievable, that you could love us the same way that you love for all eternity, Jesus the Son, and yet it is real, Father. Remove the clouds of doubt and uncertainty and hurt and whatever it is that is keeping us from embracing your offer to enter the dance, to enter into the eternal, joyful love that you have experienced within the Trinity for all time. Father, remind us of that love even as we come to the table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.